Hello, and welcome to another We Trademark podcast. Here we have another keynote lecture from Skolkush Kli, a political festival that we ran uh, a month ago, actually, on the island of Inishir in the west coast of Ireland, where we were joined by activists from across Ireland and Europe and speakers and contributors. This uh, keynote lecture is by Kostas Lapovitsis, a well-known Marxist economist, professor, indeed politician, who has written extensively on the topic of capitalism and imperialism. His views, of course, are rooted in Marxist theory and a critique of capitalist economic systems. And this lecture is entitled The State of Capitalism. That's also the title of his new collaborative book. Costas understands well um, how imperialism functions. He understands it as a natural outcome of capitalist economies where the economic interests of you know, dominant nations seek to maintain control over global trade, over finance, over production. And, and once again, I have to say in this brilliant analysis, he highlights that that this economic uh, exploitation of the periphery by the core imperialist nations inevitably leads to social and political unrest and indeed to conflict, as we're being reminded again right now, uh, as if we needed it, uh, with the ethnic cleansing, the annexation, the slaughter that's taking place in Palestine by Israel, with of course the complicity, the support and the backing of Western imperialism. Uh, if you get a chance to read his book, we recommend that you do. Uh, his co-authors and himself do a great job in advancing um, a clear-eyed kind of political program of of what it might take to build viable socialist alternatives and um, giving us all a bit of hope, which I'm sure you'd all agree we could do with right now. So anyway, this cost us. I mean, it's usual to start by saying it's a great pleasure, right? And indeed it is. To be in this audience of uh, an extraordinary gathering of activists, socialists, and all of it in a non-sectarian setting. It's very unusual, especially when you come from the Greek left where everything is sectarian. Um, so it is a great pleasure to be here. And perhaps I can convey that by sharing a little <coughs> by allowing me a little personal confession. Now, my father was an old-fashioned, old-style communist. He belonged to the uh, generation of the 40s, the resistance, civil war, and so on. And uh, that generation was defeated. And I remember back in the 1970s when I was a young boy, my father used to follow world events very closely, he would listen to the radio on a daily basis. That was during the days of the dictatorship in Greece. And follow the events very, very closely. And I remember him at the time, as a young boy, talking in terms of great respect and expectation about a young woman in Ireland who was challenging the imperial order, Bernadette Devlin. And for me, and it is such a great pleasure for me to be in the same space and to be able to convey some ideas and discuss and so on. But that's enough to set the um, uh, emotional background, as it were. I want to get on to hard tax, and that has to do with. Um, this uh, new work we've done, this new book we've created. And I want to tell you a few things about it first before I tell you what it does. Um, 
the left is in a poor condition globally, and I'll have occasion to talk about that as we move along. And he needs new ideas. He needs to tackle capitalism as it's unfolding. What is the best way to do it? Now, each one of us can follow an individual path and set our flags and tell the world what we think. I do some of that, but I'm a great believer in collective work. I believe that the complexity of the system is such today, the, the, the extent of knowledge that one needs to command, the topics that need to be covered are so enormous that not even Professor Karl Marx could do it. There is no way that you can actually condense all these events and ideas and thoughts uh, and, 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 and have something critical and productive to say to the labor movement. So I believe in collective work, and this is the outcome of collective writing. Not a collected volume, but collective writing by 11 people. There was 11 of us. At times it was like herding cats, I have to tell you. But we did it. Um, and we brought together knowledge from different areas, geographical and disciplinary areas, and we produced, a, 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 in a sense, an overview of where capitalism is, uh, in our opinion, at the moment. And we called it the state of capitalism because a lot of our emphasis is on the state, the role of the state in contemporary capitalism. And I want to say more about that because I think it's fundamental to where we are at the core of the system, but in the periphery as well. Now let me get to the, to the gist of it. What's the key point that we're making? The key point I can be very straightforward about. We believe that since the great crisis of 2007-2009, for the last 15 years or so, we're in, in, in an interregnum, a period of uh, an interregnum, an in-between period. We use it in the sense of Gramsci. In other words, the old cannot continue the way it has been doing, but the new cannot be born. Okay, we use it in that way, and we use it globally. We use it to, the refer, to, to refer to the to the global system in ways that I will explain in detail in a minute. So we think that we're in an interregnum. We need to understand what forces are involved in this interregnum, and we need to bear in mind that periods of an interregnum, as Gramsci said, are very dangerous because they can give birth to monsters, political monsters and social monsters, and we need to bear that in mind because we can see the monsters. Uh, beginning to emerge, and we need to take action in order to, you know, forestall it. <coughs> so, how to grasp then this interregnum? What what is the substance? I'll be, I'll be, <coughs> as summary as I can. On occasion, I have to use some diagrams, but I'll deliver it verbatim. So, I'll use the diagrams when we need to do it. Now, I'll talk about production. I'll talk about finance. I'll talk about the state, and I'll talk about hegemony uh, globally. And then I'll finish with the politics uh, in order to tell you what I think is happening. So let's start with production in good standard Marxist political economy way. What's happening to production? And here, most of our analysis has to do with the core of the world economy, although we do talk about the periphery too in ways that I will explain. So what's happening to production at the core of the world economy? And what's the core basically for us, the United States, the main European old imperial powers, uh, Japan, and a couple of other countries uh, of, of that type. That's basically the core. It's important because what the periphery is, is even more interesting. So what's happening to production at the core in particular? Well, what's happening to production is clear. Capitalist accumulation is in trouble. Capitalist accumulation has been in effective stagnation for the last 15 years. 
the 2010s were the worst decade in the last 50 years. The 2020s will be even worse in terms of growth rates. Uh, the system basically malfunctions, and it's in that sense that the old cannot continue. Accumulation cannot continue along the lines that he has been following the last four or five decades. It's a sustained weakness, and this weakness, we've established it and we've shown it, although we're not saying anything that even the mainstream are not saying, right? This sustained weakness can be seen in terms of key characteristics of capitalist accumulation at the core. In other words, Productivity growth is very poor. In Britain, there is no productivity growth worth talking about. No productivity, no capitalism, you understand? Capitalism must raise the productivity of labor if it is to continue. So productivity of labor is very weak. The growth of it is very weak. Investment is poor. Zombie firms are everywhere, firms that cannot even uh, make enough profits to pay their debts. And crucially, in the Marxist way, Profitability, which we've measured for the United States economy, because that's the best data, is not really doing anything. It's flatlining. I don't believe in the hydraulic Marxism of profit rates going up and down. Don't, don't misunderstand me, right? But, but profitability does give you something about real accumulation. And there you see it. It's flatlining. It's not going anywhere particularly, especially since the great crisis of 2007-2009. So in a sense, persistent stagnation, recognized even by the mainstream people like Larry Summers uh, and others. Okay, that much then about the real side, the production side. And when the production side is not doing well, capitalism is not doing well. What's finance doing? Finance is more interesting because it has more, to, more changes to, to, to show us in a way. We've seen the tremendous rise of finance for several decades, which is best called financialization, the financialization of the core, basically. The, the, Credible growth of finance, and Ireland knows very well what I mean by that in terms of the growth of finance. But since, since 2007-2009, financialization has been flatlining. There is no, the same dynamism is not present. It's not as if it's growing in the same way as it did previously after 2000 or, after the 19, or in the 1990s. You can see it in terms of a rebalancing of power within finance, which is very, very important. Until 2007-2009, the main agents of finance, the, the real kings of finance, were commercial banks. Gigantic banks operating globally. They haven't gone away. They're hugely powerful. They still set the terms of what happens. But in the last 15 years, those of you who follow it will know, or those, who, or those of you who follow the financial press will also know, what we've seen is the rise of other financial agents, particularly investment funds, hedge funds, various people who don't operate like banks, they operate like share managers, right? They collect money and they invest it in shares and so on. They, they're basically speculators of one type or another. They're not banks. So commercial banks have actually lost some influence and power. Various investment funds and hedge funds have risen uh, in the world of finance and, and they call the shots as the whole of finance has been flatlining uh, during this period. So no, no dynamism of the same type. One thing that I should mention too, so that you understand the nature of this transformation, before I show you some evidence of finance, is that these huge funds, which have risen, are very peculiar organizations in the sense that they collect money from across the face of the capitalist world, and then they buy shares and bonds. That's basically what they do. The volume of shares they've acquired the last 10 years is phenomenal. The concentration of property 
represented by these large investment funds in the United States economy, but also in other economies, is without precedent. Three funds at the moment own more than 25% of the entire equity of the United States. You understand? I mean, Marx talked about the concentration of centralization of capital. What did he know? What did he know? I mean, three funds hold 25%. Uh, now, you can understand. If they start exercising their power through that, they're not at the moment. But if they do, capitalism will behave very, very differently because of the property that they hold. In any case, if you show them the next one, just to, just to make my, my point clearer, here is the profit rate of non-financial, real production. This thing I showed you before. This, this bit I showed you before. It's flatlining. Here is the profit, profitability of the financials, the enterprises. You can see the financial enterprise. You can see the growth steadily throughout the last few decades. It peaks just before the great crash, 2007-2009, bounces back, but it doesn't really go anywhere very fast at the moment. So that much about finance, no more to say about this. Production then is not doing particularly well at the core. Finance is doing what I've just shown you. This has created space and has called for an unprecedented intervention by the capitalist state. The last 15 years have been a unique period in the history of capitalism in terms of the intervention of the state. This is really the time of the state. And I say this because People talk about neoliberalism, you know, all these uh, old American ideas, the state at the market, and the state is bad, the market is good, the neoliberalism is about uh, the market, which will, it's just nonsense. The last 15 years have seen the rise of the state in a way that it's impossible to recognize in any period of capitalism before it. The state is the pillar of neoliberal capitalism, <coughs> Neoliberalism is un unthinkable without the state at the moment. It would collapse in a matter of weeks if it wasn't uh, for the state. Uh, but, and here things become interesting, the state operates differently at the core and the, at the periphery. The difference between core and periphery begins to emerge very clearly when we think of the state. I'll have more to say about that uh, in a minute. <laughs> at the core, the power of the capitalist state today comes first and foremost not from command over productive resources, They've divested themselves from it, by and large. Privatization, right? And so on. It comes from command over money, command over the final means of payment, command over domestic money. Command over domestic money is the, the lever, the pivot of state power today. That's why the central bank is by far the most important economic agent and organization of the modern capitalist state. There's never been a period in which the central bank has been more important in the history of capitalism. You can see that then in terms of the way in which the state today creates money, and in order to create money, it buys public debt. So on the one hand, the state issues public debt, so it becomes more indebted as it intervenes in the economy, and on the other, the central bank buys the debt and creates money. It's an incredible machine. How long it can continue, we don't know, and it's very contradictory, but that's what's happening. So if you can show them, here is, the, here is the European Central Bank, so that you don't think I'm only talking about the United States. The European Central Bank, a very peculiar central bank. But let's not get into that. Here is the money creation by the European Central Bank. This is basically the fresh money it creates. You can see how it explodes after 2007, 2009. And you can see how it just rockets during the pandemic crisis. 
This is what allowed the state to intervene in the pandemic crisis, this enormous creation of money. If you look at the other side of the balance sheet, where the central bank supports this money, this is the public that it has acquired. The European Central Bank, not, which is presumably not, buy, not acquiring public debt, right? But it's actually behaving like the Federal Reserve. So on the one hand, it buys public debt, the state becomes indebted. On the other, it creates money. What does this achieve? They can support aggregate demand, you see. When, when the system becomes uh, disarranged, when, 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 when the pandemic hits, they can intervene. They can create money, they can create debt, the central bank buys the debt, creates the money, and they can support demand. They can give the money to, to small businesses, to medium businesses, to big businesses, and they can boost demand for a period, and they did it. They can even post money to workers to a certain extent when they need to do it, to support demand in that way. That is an incredible power on the part of the state deriving from command over money. It's contradictory, because when production doesn't function well, if you boost demand, you'll end up with inflation, which is basically what's happening to us, right? And that's the, that's the ultimate cause of it. Nonetheless, it doesn't take away the power of the state to do that. So, in the interregnum, we've witnessed the rise of this enormously powerful state at the core, which can intervene in economic ways, unprecedented, based on command over money. It's monopoly command uh, over money and the central bank the most important uh, economic agent of contemporary capitalism at the core. That doesn't mean, however, that we've got a negation of neoliberalism. A lot of people were watching the events of in, in 2020 as the state did that, and they thought this is the end of neoliberalism because they were conditioned to think if the state intervenes, that's the end of neoliberalism. No, no, no. The state must intervene to preserve neoliberalism. And that is clear in concrete ways. How? Two things they have not touched. This powerful th state doesn't touch two things as it intervenes. The first, capital-labor relations. It doesn't change the balance in favor of labor against capital. It doesn't do that. Trade union rights, trade union laws. No, 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 that's not. They don't intervene in this way. And second, property rights. It doesn't intervene to challenge property rights over the means of production by the capitalist class. That is the holy grail. They don't. They don't change the balance of public property relative to private property. And I'll come back to that as we move along. <laughs> That's the nature of the state in the economy. Now, to sustain itself in this way the last 15 years, the state has also hardened its stance on politics, on domestic repression, on the mechanisms of democracy. Democracy has emptied out the last 15 years. The democracy, you see, is not simply the right to vote. It's also the ability of working people and ordinary people to express their will and to make it reality where they live, in the neighborhood, at the workplace, and elsewhere. There are all these intermediary bodies that give content to democracy. The last 15 years, and before, but the last 15 years, very clearly, they've lost substance. They've become, they've become emptied, basically. Uh, and that indicates to me and to you, I think, what's been happening in the last 15 years as this very powerful state has emerged, popular sovereignty has declined headlong, together with democracy. That is the nature of, of the uh, contemporary um, uh, states. Peripheral states, now, do not have such command over fiat money. 
That's a key difference. They cannot do, by commanding their domestic money, what core countries can do. What the United States can do, what Britain can do to a certain extent, what the European Central Bank can do and the EU can do, Tanzania cannot do. Uruguay cannot do. It's impossible uh, to operate in the same way. We saw it in the pandemic. They just couldn't respond in the same way. They had to rely uh, on other sources of funding and so on. And that begins to show you the difference between core and periphery today. The, di the difference in power and the difference in the way in which you intervene uh, in the economy. They are dependent. Peripheral powers are dependent, and that's crucial. And they are dependent on what? If you look at it from the perspective of the finance minister of Mozambique, on Nigeria, your country is hit by the pandemic. Just as the United States is. The United States can expand its demand, spend money by doing, going through the mechanism that I've explained to you. Is this open to you? It's not. If you do that, the exchange rate would collapse. You won't be able to sustain your economy. You'd have a foreign exchange crisis. Why? Because you depend on the dollar. You understand? You depend on world money. You are, you are, a, you are a subservient power. The, your, the, the nature of your presence in the world economy is not the same as that of the core. That begins to, to give you the difference between core and, uh, and periphery. World money then, which operates very differently from domestic money, is pivotal to contemporary capitalism. We cannot understand core and periphery, we cannot understand hegemony today independently of world money and the role of world money being the dollar, fundamentally, but not only the dollar. And I'll have occasion to say more about that as we move along. Now. That much then about core and periphery today. But during the same period, the last 15 years, what has emerged, which makes things very, very interesting and very important from a Marxist perspective, is that it's not simply that core and periphery have repositioned themselves in relation, in relation to money. There's been a restructuring of core and periphery. And what has, re, what has emerged is competition for hegemony exercised by the core, entirely from within the periphery. We've never seen anything like that before. We've seen hegemonic challenges. Britain was a hegemon, right? The imperial hegemon for 50, 60 years. Who challenged it? Germany. France, potentially. Russia, maybe. Established capitalist powers. The United States is the hegemon today in this system. Who challenges it? They do challenge it. But it's China. It's Russia. Potentially India. Countries that are coming from the periphery, from what we used to think the periphery. All the challenges to American hegemony today in this period of the interregnum are coming from what we used to call the periphery and we still do. How to understand that then? How to, how to begin to grasp that? What is the nature of imperialism in this period of the interregnum? Hegemonic power, I will, I will put to you, today rests on command over world money because that's the pivotal instrument, and the ability to set the terms of investment, trade, uh, finance, and so on for the world economy as a whole. Whoever sets those terms, sets the framework, is the hegemon. Uh, and whoever commands world money and allows that setting of the terms to take place is the hegemon. And the contest is about this um, hegemonic power. The nature of imperialism today and hegemonic contest is not like it used to be 100 years ago, although we have some similarities, which I will explain, because no, apart from everything else, there's no formal empire. 
The contest is about informal empire in this way, and it's about command over world money and ability to set the terms of transacting and investing. A new hegemonic contest than has arisen in the last 15 years through this rebalancing of core and periphery. The challenges come all from the periphery, and as I've mentioned to you already, it's China, Russia, and the BRICS. Let me show you some evidence so you understand the nature of it. This is manufacturing value added in the world economy up to 2021. Okay? This is China. And it's an explosion from 2004. These are the five core countries, which if you add them up, they don't make China. The workshop of the world in manufacturing is shifted to China. Productive power of the core, which has been malfunctioning, is shifted to China. That's basically one key element of the rebalancing of core and periphery and the rise of the main challenger for hegemonic power. This is trade, export of goods and services. This is China again. This is the United States. In the period of the pandemic, China exceeded the United States as the main trading power in the world. So in production and in trade globally, a challenger has emerged out of the periphery. You understand? Out, out of what we used to consider the periphery. It's not an old imperial power. It is not Germany challenging the United States. So Japan challenging the United States. It's China. And not only. If you should. This is military expenditure. And it's the first I will say about that. And I'll have more to say about military expenditure in a minute. Imperial power starts with production. Has to do with trade, but it must translate into military power because it's states that compete, as I indicated previously. And states ultimately compete with, compete with guns. Okay? They compete with politics, but they ultimately compete with guns. If you look at the reality of military competition, you see something very, very revealing. Here is the United States. It outspends all the other powers several times over. This is about 900 billion a year dollars. This expenditure by the United States is because the United States maintains dozens of, of military bases across the world, as the hegemon must do, in order to be able to set the terms of trading and in order to defend the dollar. But look at China. China has emerged as a significant military spender. The rest are European powers, and Russia is somewhere in there. So when you see military competition between the United States and Russia, you mustn't think different different categories. However, this includes a lot of spending by the United States on wages, salaries, and so on, and expenses of military bases. When you look at guns, actual, firing, actual firepower, Russia looks a lot better than that. Bear that in mind to understand the nature of the contest. So the hegemon spends a lot more than anybody else. China is emerging as number two. The others are following behind. Militarily, we've got an intensification of competition, which goes together with productive and trade um, competition. But the contest is far from settled. The West is misfiring in production. It's not doing much in terms of finance. Competitors have emerged, but the contest is far from over. It's far from over, and it's very easy to, to show. And you know why? because there is also world finance, apart from world production and world trade. And when you look at world finance, the power in world finance is in the hands of the hegemon still, the established hegemon. The real hegemonic 
prowess of the United States comes from its command over world money, which I mentioned before, and world finance. That's where its power um, truly, come, truly comes from, and it's easy to show in terms of the next diagram, which is a bit more, more difficult, but you'll see. This is, this is holding of world money, holding of dollars. Right? Who holds dollars in the world? If you want to participate in the world market, you need to hold dollars. That's why the hegemon has the power that the hegemon has. Other currencies are emerging to challenge the, the power of the dollar, and that's the nature of the hegemonic struggle. Are they succeeding? Not really. Here is the dollar. It's declining, but it still is two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of total reserves in the world. This is the euro. It's failing to do it. And these are a bunch of smaller currencies, and the Chinese currency is somewhere in there. It's a little pinprick in there. So when it comes to finance and money, China is not a competitor. It's not in the same league. The United States is miles ahead of it. It commands world finance. It commands world money. Um, it will not allow easily China to contest it. Yeah? And China hasn't got an economy that can allow it to do it easily because it's a state-commanded economy. I can come back to that in question um, uh, and answer session if you like. Russia is not in that game either. I say this because I'm sure you've been reading about the BRICS, the uh, tendency to create a new money, new world money, uh, to de-dollarize, de de and so on. Hold your horses. It's not going to happen fast. Uh, and it's not going to happen soon. Those who think that it's going to happen uh, very rapidly because the BRICS have had a meeting and so on, need to have a look at this. Um, the United States holds that power, and it's not going to allow it to go away. So in short, let me wrap up and then I'll tell you about the politics. In short, what have we got? What's the state of capitalism? The core is in relative stagnation. Financialization is not going anywhere. It's dominated by the state. Globally, we've entered a new era of hegemonic contests. In a sense, imperialist conflict, reminiscent of 1914, in what way? The conflict is about economy. Who commands the world economy? It's not like the 1950s or the 1960s, for those of you who were around at that time of the 1970s and 80s, between the, between the United States and Russia, or Soviet Union, which was about politics and ideology. No, no, today it's about economics. Who commands the world economy? In that sense, it's like 1914, right? But it's different from 1914 because it's not about formal empire. It's about world money, and it's about who sets the terms uh, of reference of, um, of, of world operation. Um, that doesn't make it any less vicious. It makes it more vicious and more dangerous than before. It makes it more dangerous than before, and I will finish with that. Why? In the Marxist tradition, when we look at this intra-imperialist conflict, if we were to say something fresh, we would want to connect it to what's happening to among capitals themselves. This is what Lenin did in his classic theory of uh, imperialism back in 1916, okay? And this is something that we ought to do too in order to understand precisely this intensification of imperialist uh, conflict that we can all see and I've just outlined for you. And the ultimate cause of that, translating in this interstate rivalry, is what? The two things that I've already mentioned in the beginning. Globalized production, which is in trouble at the core, but it has spread its tentacles across the world, establishing global production chains and globalized finance. 
the financial system that I mentioned before. These are still dominated by key powers in the world. Others are moving in. This pairing of capitals, globalized production and globalized finance, is the most aggressive pairing of capitals we know in the history of capitalism. They don't create formal empire. They don't create territorial empire. They don't create territorial exclusivity. They want to swallow the world. And not only the world, they want to swallow the moon, Mars, anything else. It is inherently expansionary, aggressive, the most aggressive form of capital we've seen. That's what's underneath, uh, ultimately, this intensification of capitalist uh, competition and hegemonic contest that we're living through, ultimately threatening us with war. Because you will end up in war, it's clear. You will end up in war, and it might even be nuclear war, which will be the end of all wars. <laughs> that then is the state of capitalism. What should the left do? I want to finish with that. Now, we thought of that a, long, a lot when we did our work. We wanted to say something positive, and I will say something positive. But we can't answer the question without recognizing where we are. And where we are is not a good place for the left. The left is historically at a very weak, uh, in a very weak state. Um, for two reasons. First of all, the left has lost a lot of its organic links with the working class. It has lost a lot of the um, historic connections with the working class and with the poor. Not just the working class, because the working class is one thing, the poor is quite another. The left has historically been the, the voice, you know, the, uh, of, the, of the working class and the poor. Even if the poor and the working class were not voters of the left or adherents of the left, they always recognize the left as one of us. Because the left looked the same, spoke the same, smelled the same, dressed the same. It doesn't any longer. Um, so that is one big problem uh, for the left in confronting this dire situation or difficult situation that I've outlined for the world. The second um, reason for the weakness of the left globally is that there is ideological confusion, profound ideological confusion. The left has lost confidence in its own ideas. See, the left became what it is because it was prepared to challenge the established order. It emerged with the Jacobins. It wasn't invented by Karl Marx. Karl Marx gave it its specific character. Right? And he was prepared to challenge the um, established order. He was brave. You know, he wanted to change the world, um, upturn it. Uh, with regard to economy as well, change the way the economy functioned. Well, it doesn't do it anymore. You talk too much of the left, and it doesn't have the confidence it should have in its own ideas about how society and economy could be organized differently. The combination of the two, in other words, becoming less connected to the working class and losing confidence in your own ideas about how the world could be organized differently, economically too, is not a good place to be. Uh, when you're confronting this situation that I've um, uh, outlined for you. But the need for new ideas is more pressing than ever. I've never known a period in which the need for new ideas is more pressing. It's obvious that people don't want this, what I've just outlined to you. It's obvious. They don't want to live like that anymore. They don't want this situation. They don't, they don't want the drive to war. They don't want the, 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 the continuous pressure and uh, difficulty of production, finance in this way. Um, 
So unless we realize that and we come up with new ideas, then the interregnum will indeed give birth to monsters. Because if the left doesn't move into this space and doesn't give ideas, creative ideas, fresh ideas, the, the, far, the far right will do it. It's clear, it's already happening. The far right will do it. And if you listen to how the far right talks, more often than not, it purloins a lot of the terms of the left. And purloins a lot of the topics that the left used to, do, used to have as its own. Why? Because the left will not talk about that anymore. So you get, you get the far right talking about things that we ought to be talking about, and then they poison these things because they're the far right with racism, with, with everything else that the far right does. Uh, but that is the real danger that we face across Europe and in many other parts of the world. So how, then, what, how to do it? Well, I'm not going to give you a prescription, am I? But I will, I will tell you what we think is part of the team that produced this work, and we've argued for it. But I will first say that now it is for each country really to take stock, look at its own traditions, look at its own balance of class disposition within it, and decide how best to, to tackle it. Nonetheless, within that, there are four things, four points that are of crucial importance, and I think hold generally, if the left wishes to confront the situation and say something about this really decrepit capitalism that's surrounding us. The first, possibly the most pressing one, is a proposal for productive restructuring. Let's call it that. Let me be technical about it. In other words, what kind of economy do we want? How, how does the left think that the economy should be restructured? What should we do about it in order to create the jobs, the employment, the activities, and so on, that, um, that, 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 that the world needs? And in this regard, we need to argue for deglobalization. First and foremost, deglobalization of production, deglobalization of finance. We need to do that and argue for more local production, local consumption, local, uh, localization of economic activity, because that is also the only way to protect the environment, um, or to begin to protect the environment, or to have policies that protect the environment. So we need to think, we need to argue, we need to bring the experience and knowledge of different countries in order to propose deglobalization and see how that would work out uh, in practice. That doesn't mean becoming isolated, I stress. I'm not, we're not talking isolation here. We're talking deglobalization. We're talking about breaking the madness of globalized finance and globalized production that have created this mess that we find ourselves uh, in the midst of. The second that goes together with productive extraction is, of course, strengthening democracy and regaining popular sovereignty. There is no alternative economic policy that we can propose, alternative economic strategy that doesn't involve democracy. If you read Karl Marx and Engels, they always talk about democracy. It's the first thing that they talk about, even before they became Marxists, because they, they were radicals before they became Marxists, right? But even, even before they did that, they always talk about democracy. And it's true. Without democracy, there is no hope for the poor, the working class, the downtrodden of establishing their own say uh, in society. So we need to give to the institutions that used to exist and still don't, but are void of, of, of content. We need to give them fresh content. And we need to create new institutions that allow democracy to become a real thing. That's popular sovereignty. Not voting every four years or every five years uh, or whatever it is. So that's number two. Number three, we need anti-imperialism. 
We need to oppose this drive to war. We need to take a clear stance against war. We need an anti-war movement in Europe right now with regard to Ukraine as well. We need, we need an anti-war movement. That doesn't mean an anti-Russian movement. It means an anti-war movement. The two are very, very different things. Uh, we need to be very clear about that. Anti-imperialism, anti-war, and that can only go together with demanding and obtaining national sovereignty. Without national sovereignty, there is no way in which you can have genuine uh, anti-imperialism. Without national sovereignty as well, there is no way in which you can have popular sovereignty and the other way around. Democracy exists, unfortunately, only within the national context. That's the reality of it. I'll tell you that as a Greek. We lived through it in the previous decade. There is no democracy beyond the, beyond the, the national uh, borders. You need national sovereignty to be an anti-imperialist, and you need to connect that with popular sovereignty for democracy, for the poor, to be able to have, to, to, to have, to have the say in how the country is run. In other words, you, as Marx said, we need to teach the nation to speak in the language of the poor. That's basically what we need to do. We need to, we need to make the nation speak like the working class. That's what left-wing national sovereignty actually means. The last thing here, perhaps in many ways the most difficult, is we need to think of how to rebalance the public and the private. That's a very difficult thing. We need to think about it in the economy. How far should the private go? How far should the public go? Uh, what does it mean? How, how far should we intervene and to what extent? What is the balance of property rights? Where, how far does property go? Because capitalism ultimately is about property rights. Don't believe any of the nonsense you hear or you read. The, the rich want property over things in order to, to get their returns. So how to rebalance that? What is the nature of the state that will do that? How to bring the contest within the boundaries of the state? How to, how to manage that conflict? Because the state is a vast institution, as, I, as I've already indicated, and it contains very many different components, and we need to intervene there in order to um, pursue um, uh, the struggle as it should go. In some, though, ultimately, we take our cue from the long history of socialists before us. We know that in this struggle, we must stress the collective and the social over the individual and the private. The collective and the social override the individual and the private anytime. That, for us, is the guiding principle. Socialism is the guiding principle. We will rediscover it for the time ahead. Thank you very much.